don't hit back. Welcome everyone to My Bleeding Ears Podcast. This is episode number 98. With me today is no one because I'm here alone. Jessalyn has a bit of an illness. She's under the weather a little bit here. She has some voice problems and she'd probably be coughing the whole time. So yeah, it's just going to be me solo this time around, just like the very first episode of My Bleeding Ears, which was actually called My Bleeding Eyes for the first like 10 episodes before I changed it. It was supposed to be like a companion piece to my um, to my uh, blog, but you know, really, who who does blogs anymore, right? So <laughs> it was um, I was just by myself at that point in time. I really hadn't thought of who would be coming on on a, a consistent basis, and then I finally asked Jessalyn, and she said yes, 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 and I was like, all right, great. Now I have a co-host with me. And throughout that time, too, I would have guests. Uh, there was a few episodes where she wasn't on either. But this is the the first episode since episode one where I am going solo. So, yeah, check that episode out. I'm really nervous in that one. And it's, it's a pretty quick one, too. It's demons. And I even say the uh, my bleeding eyes for the opening, too, for the podcast. So, uh, yeah, so this is, it's tough doing this kind of, you know, you're not really playing off anyone, you have to have your shit together more, you know, you're not, you know, you're not relying on that other person as much. So, here we go, um, I still have a movie of the week, I don't have any movies to review this week, but I do have a couple topics I want to talk about. Um, they've been in the news lately, one of them has been in the news, and the other one is just my personal thought about a movie. So, let's get underway here. The first thing I want to talk about is the um, whole Martin Scorsese debacle, I guess. Uh, he, I think a lot of people are construing his words um, to say that he doesn't think that the Marvel films are good in any way. Or he's really saying they're not cinema. And a lot of people are taking that as that he hates the movies, and he doesn't really hate them, he just doesn't, I mean, it's just not his thing, you know. Uh, Scorsese has put out fucking fantastic films from the 70s, uh, all the way from, uh, what was that, Who's Knocking at My Door, uh, Mean Streets, we have Taxi Driver, Goodfellas, tons of movies, some of the greatest movies ever made, along with The Irishman, which we will talk about next week when Jessalyn's feeling better. Um... So, he's done a lot of stuff, and... Fucking motorcycle. (laughs) Uh, He's done a lot of things, and... Yeah, he's very, very respected in the film community. But he tickled a lot of people the wrong way with this one, and there have been a lot of people coming back at him in a way. Um, A lot of movie directors, like James Gunn, uh, and a few other actors have come out and said, Hey, um... You know, you may not think it this way. I disagree. A lot of hard, a lot of people work hard in these movies, and I don't think Scorsese was was saying that these people don't put in hard work or aren't making a good product. 
I think they're making a good product too. I guess what I'm trying to say here is that I'm kind of siding with Scorsese on this one. He's right. <clears throat> this These Marvel superhero movies that, are, that come out three or four times a year are pretty much serials. They're not movies. And there's there's nothing like... I, I've never feared for anyone's life in the Marvel movies, except for the very last one, where no one knew in, in Endgame if it was going to be <clears throat> Captain America or Iron Man who, who die at the end of this one. But it took 23 movies, 22 movies to get there for that. So I'm going to read a few excerpts from uh, from his rebuttal or his, his op-ed that he, he wrote for the New York Times. And um, here, I'll just start now. When I was in England in early October, I gave an interview to Empire Magazine. I was asked a question about Marvel movies. I answered it. I said that I've tried to watch a few of them and that they're not for me. That they seem to me to be closer to theme parks than they are movies that I've known and loved throughout my life. And in the end, I don't think that they're cinema. Some people seem to have seized on the last part of my answer as insulting or as evidence of hatred for Marvel on my part. If anyone is intent on characterizing my words in that light, there's nothing I can do to stand in your way or their way. Many franchise films are made by people of considerable talent and artistry. I agree very much with that. And these people are, are are the best. They're pros at doing this. I'm sure Disney and Marvel hire the best people to do all this. And it shows on screen. I love the last battle in Endgame. I thought it's fantastic. Thor picks up the hammer, and then we get our conclusion that everyone wanted, and everyone foretold anyway. Because seriously, at the end of uh, Infinity War... Were you really scared that all these people were going to be dead? All these superheroes were never coming back? Half the world was never not going to come back? No way. Uh, no way. Many franchise films are made by people of considerable talent and artistry. You can see it on the screen. The fact that the films themselves don't interest me is a matter of personal taste and temperament. I know that if I were younger, if I had come of an age at a later time, I might have been excited by these pictures and maybe even wanted to make one myself. But I grew up when I did. Pretty much when he grew up, there was none of this shit going on. <laughs> it was those Superman serials that would come on, and he would stand there and take bullets to the chest, and then someone would throw a gun at him, and he'd duck. Those are the kind of things that were on around that time, I'm, I'm sure of. Um, for me, for the filmmakers I came to love and respect, for my friends who started making movies around the same time that I did, cinema was about revelation. Aesthetic, emotional, and spiritual re revelation. It was about characters, the complexity of people and their contradictory and sometimes paradoxical natures, the way they can hurt one another and love one another and suddenly come face to face with themselves. It was about confronting the unexpected on the screen and in the life and in the life it dramatized and interpreted and enlarging the sense of what possible in the art form. And that was the key for us. It was an art form. There was some debate about that at the time, so we stood up for cinema as an equal to literature or music or dance. And we came to understand that the art could be found in many different places and in just as many forms. Alfred Hitchcock, uh, he references Alfred Hitchcock in this next piece. Um, he says, I suppose you can say that Hitchcock was his own franchise, which, I mean, it kind of is. It's a good point there. People were Hitchcock fans 
and they kind of went and saw his movies as serials too. But as Scorsese says, is that uh, or that he was our franchise. Every new Hitchcock picture was an event. To be in a packed house in one of the old theaters watching Rear Window was an extraordinary experience. It was an event created by the chemistry between the audience and the picture itself, and it was electrifying. And in a certain way, Hitchcock films are also like theme parks. I'm thinking of Strangers on a Train, in which the climax takes place on a merry-go-round and at a real amusement park, and Psycho, which I saw at midnight, a midnight show on its opening day, an experience I will never forget. People went to be surprised and thrilled, and they weren't disappointed. Six or seven years later, we're still watching those pictures and marveling at them. But is it the thrills and the shocks that we keep going back to? I don't think so. The set pieces in North by Northwest are stunning. But they can be nothing more than a succession of dynamic and elegant compositions and cuts without the painful emotions at the center of the story or the absolute lostness of Cary Grant's character. Some say that Hitchcock's pictures had a sameness to them, and perhaps that's true. Hitchcock himself wondered about it. But the sameness of today's franchise pictures is something else again. Many of the elements that define cinema as I know it are there in Marvel pictures. What's not there is revelation, mystery, or genuine emotional danger. Nothing is at risk. The pictures are made to satisfy a specific set of demands, and they are designed as variations on a finite number of themes. They are sequels in name, but they are remakes in spirit, and everything in them is officially sanctioned because it can't really be any other way. That's the nature of modern film franchises. Market researched, audience tested, vetted, modified, revetted, and remodified until they're ready for consumption. I totally have to agree with that. Look at this big machine that is Marvel. And hell, not even Marvel anymore. Disney. Huge machine. I'm sure there's tons of market research that goes into this. And it's not necessarily for to get people's real emotions. So yeah, I agree with that. Absolutely. Another way of putting it would be that, there are, that they are everything that films of Paul, Th- Paul Thomas Anderson or Claire Denis or Spike Lee or Ari Aster or Catherine Bigelow or Wes Anderson are not. When I watch a movie by any of those fil- filmmakers... I know I'm going to see something absolutely new and be taken to unexpected and maybe even unnameable areas of experience. My sense of what is possible in telling stories with movie images and sounds is going to be expanded. So you might ask, what's my problem? Why not just let superhero films and other franchise films be? The reason is simple. In many places around this country and around the world, franchise films are now your primary choice if you want to see something on the big screen absolutely true unless you go to like one of these art house places where or a theater where they have like that little subsection where they show the art house indie films or maybe not even really indie films more of just i guess higher budget indie films you would say uh there's a theater up here in chicago or actually in the city of evanston where they do do that where you there's a separate area for the more artsy films or document documentaries and stuff so uh, occasionally, yeah, I'll go to see those, but not every theater has those choices. They're all those big name movies. They'll have three screens for Frozen, or they'll have uh, a screen for that new Charlie's Angels reboot remake. 
And who gives a shit about those movies? Like, seriously, Charlie's Angels came out in the 70s. And that franchise is 40 years old. 40 years it came out. Even more than that. It's boring. It's the same shit. Who cares about that stuff? I don't. I'm sure Scorsese doesn't either. Let's continue. It's a perilous time in film exhibition, and there are fewer independent theaters than ever. True. The equation has flipped, and streaming has become the primary delivery system. Still, I don't know a single filmmaker who doesn't want to design films for the big screen to be projected before audiences in the theater. That includes me, and I'm speaking as someone who just completed a picture for Netflix, The Irishman. It, and it alone, allowed us to make The Irishman the way we needed to, and for that I'll always be thankful. We have a theatrical window, which is great. Would I like the picture to play on more big screens for longer periods of time? Of course I would. But no matter whom you make your movies with, the fact is that the screen in most multiplexes are crowded with franchise pictures. I I constantly see... It seems like every single week or every other week, another remake or sequel is coming out. Some are cool. I mean, I, I do like sequels, too. I go and see them. My favorite movie of all time is a sequel. So let's continue. And if you're going to tell me it's simply a matter of supply and demand and giving the people what they want, I'm going to disagree. It's a chicken and egg issue. If people are given only one kind of thing and endlessly sold only one kind of thing, of course there's going to be more want for that one kind of thing. But, you may argue... Can't they just go home and watch anything else they want on Netflix or iTunes or Hulu? Sure! Anywhere but on the big screen, where the filmmaker intended her or his picture to be seen. In the past 20 years, as we all know, the movie business has changed on all fronts. But the most ominous change has happened stealthily and under cover of night. The gradual but steady elimination of risk. Many films today are perfect products manufactured for immediate consumption. Many of them are well made by teams of talented individuals, just like I said. All the same, they they lack something essential to cinema. The unifying vision of an individual artist. Because, of course, the individual artist is the riskiest factor of all. Which is absolutely true. I, I, I think that's what also kills the independent film, because... Um... It might suck. <laughs> it might not be a very good movie that you're putting out there. Sure, you made a competent film, but if there's no substance in it. And yeah, then you're going to have even fewer people see these movies, which would make these theaters even more empty, and then they would usher in just more manufactured crap into them. So it's a tough line to, to, to step on right there, to cross, or to even balance on. It's a tough one. I'm uh, Scorsese again. I'm certainly not implying that movies should be a subsidized art form or that they ever were. When the Hollywood studio system was alive and well, the tension between the artists and the people who ran the business was constant and intense. But it was a productive tension that gave us some of the greatest films ever made. Today, the tension is gone. And there are some of the business with absolute indifference to the very question of art and an attitude toward the history of cinema that is both dismissive and proprietary, a lethal combination. The situation, sadly, is that we now have two separate fields. There's worldwide audiovisual entertainment, and then there's cinema. 
They still overlap from time to time, but that's becoming increasingly rare. And I fear that the financial dominance of one is being used to marginalize and even belittle the existence of the other. For anyone who dreams of making movies or who is just starting out, the situation at this moment is brutal and, in, in, and inhospitable to art. And the act of simply writing those words fill me with terrible sadness. So pretty much what he's saying is like creating new stuff is hard. It's tough to do and you're going to have people close the door in your face constantly. And I'm sure that's what happens now to a lot of independent people and independent filmmakers, which I've spoken to in certain times at conventions. I've, I've spoken to some directors and actors and they're just like, yeah, I'm, I'm trying my hardest. I'm really trying to get my name out there. I'm really trying to show people my artwork, but no one's biting or very few people are biting. And I, I don't know if I should just keep going with this. I should just give up, call it quits or what? And these are people who have been doing it for years. And this isn't just someone who's started a douchebag podcast a few years ago and is saying, like, no one fucking listens. And this is people out there putting putting out films. They're not huge budgets, and they may, may not be the best films. But they're getting overlooked. And I'm not saying it's it's absolutely the fault of these big studios putting out these superhero films. or It's not. And, and you can even look back at um, horror movies that they shit out all the time, too. Sure, they cost six, seven million dollars to make, which is really low, but kind of high for a horror film. Especially if it's an independent horror film, that's a lot of money. I'm sure if I had that amount of money, I could make a great, I could make a great fucking horror movie. I'm sure George Romero could have made a, a, a great Day of the Dead movie. As much as I like Day of the Dead, that movie was cut to shit. In the beginning, like he had a bigger script for that movie, and he just he cut down most of it and just made it an isolation piece. And sure, he he added a few more of those ideas to Land of the Dead, but all uh, I think he only got like two three million dollars from that movie. You can imagine if he had more, and <laughs> I think that movie would have been a modern masterpiece of zombie horror. I think it still is, but I it. it quite possibly could have surpassed Dawn of the Dead. Who knows? And I think that movie's one of my favorite movies of all time. It's a masterpiece. So yeah, I am... Superhero fatigue is setting in for me, especially after reading this and getting a point of view from one of the, one of the most heralded directors of our time. People born a lot, a lot, later than, uh, a lot earlier than I was. So uh, I guess to sum it up is just, yeah, these are these are movies that you're going to and that you're having a great time, but there's there's you're not leaving there wanting to talk constantly about someone's what happened to someone and how they're never going to come back or, or or a bombshell was dropped on a character and there's no coming back from it. I think maybe just think about that next time you go and see one of these movies and really take a look at it and see is there anything that that that's going to that's going to bring out any emotion in me that I don't usually get with these kind of films. It's very rare it happens. Very rare. But it does happen. One of them I would have to say is actually one of the guys who did speak up against Martin Scorsese, which is James Gunn who did Guardians of the Galaxy. 
I think that movie is great. And I do believe that movie is cinema. Because that movie did make me feel a lot of things. And there was... We didn't know any of these characters. No one knew who these characters were except for maybe some, like, big comic book dudes. And it wasn't even like the original Guardians of the Galaxy team. Really. They do touch on that in the second one a bit. But not a lot of people knew these these characters. I knew a few of them. I knew uh, a little bit about Groot and Rocket Raccoon. I knew about from Marvel vs. Capcom 3. But, like, I really didn't know these characters all that much. And they brought us... They brought us these new worlds, and they brought us all these different characters coming together and playing off each other well. And it's just something I really haven't gotten. I can't really think of any other Marvel superhero movie, not even the X-Men movie, which those movies are all over the place. The first one, yeah, I think that movie's probably cut to shit anyway. Okay, <clears throat> going on to my next topic, which is going to be a lot shorter than this one. There's this movie that came out a few weeks ago, maybe a little longer than that, called Honey Boy. And it's written by Shia LaBeouf, and it's based off his life story. And people are loving this movie. Um, I'm not going to see it. I kind of think he's a dickhead, Shia. And I think he pretty much just made this movie as an excuse or an apology for the way he's acted in the past. I think he's showing, like, wow, I had a shitty childhood growing up. My dad was like this. This was like this. So this kind of gives me an excuse for the way I was or the way I acted. And he may say, like, no, there was no excuse. But really, come on. You made a whole fucking movie about your childhood. So, fuck you, man. <laughs> it, it, I, it, whenever I see like, uh, promotional material for it, I'm usually just like, fuck you, man. Like, you, yeah, you're you're a talented actor, blah, blah, blah. You've been in some decent movies, but you're a jackass all the same. So uh, you can make a million movies about how shitty your life was or, or all the different shitty things that happened to you, but how about, like, how about all the people were shitty things happened to them and they weren't assholes? How about that? Alright, well that about wraps it up for this first segment, and I will see you after this. You're listening to the Prescribed Films Podcast Network, home to hundreds of hours of free podcast entertainment. The shows on this network all have a common goal, providing you with the best discussions about movies and other forms of entertainment media. The PFPN hopes to fill your ear holes with audio joy. Visit our website with links to all the other amazing shows at www.thepfpn.com. Thanks for listening. Our movie of the week is the 2011 film... From Astron 6, Manborg. This is a movie I actually did a while ago. Uh, it was supposed to be an episode of oh, Man in the Teens somewhere, but there was a mix-up. And I never ended up doing the movie until now, because I know that Jessalyn did not want to watch this film at all again, because she <laughs> saw it before the first time. Not a big fan. Uh, this movie is directed by Stephen Kostansky. 
He um, his other movies that he's done after this movie was Father's Day and The Editor. Uh, the editor is kind of like a spoof slash satire of the Italian Giallo movies. I have not seen the editor yet, but I really do want to see it. It looks I, I saw parts of it. And I can get the tone of the movie and what it was trying to do. And I, I think a lot of people didn't get it when they saw it. But also, um, Stephen Costanzi is a big makeup artist, which really shows up in Manboard. He did work for like Suicide Squad bunch of other huge movies I didn't write him <laughs> very many of them down but he did a lot of the work uh, especially for one of his older one of the movies that came out lately of his which was called The Void now, a movie I liked a lot especially my second and third viewing of it I liked a lot more because the screen was a lot more crisp and I could see things going on <laughs> uh, the last time I saw it was in HD or anything and it was a very dark film but after that, it, it really built up, and uh, the third viewing really helped out, and I liked the movie so much more after that. And another movie I, I, he did that I had no idea was the another reboot of the Leprechaun movie, which I haven't seen yet. All I, I heard that he you know, the Leprechaun rides a drone, and I actually watched that part from the movie, and it's pretty funny. And you, you gotta bring it into 2018 when you do a Leprechaun movie. Can't leave it in the 90s with Jennifer Aniston. So anyway, um, Stephen Kostansky and Jeremy Gillespie are like the main guys behind this. All those movies they've done. Especially this one. This is like their, their first full movie, I believe. And this movie's only about an hour long. Which is perfect. <laughs> it, it didn't need to be any longer than that. We got as much out of the story as we needed. Uh, another another thing that uh, Stephen Kostansky did, which is my favorite segments of the, the ABCs of whatever what was that terror horror abc's of death is the correct way i always say abc's of horror i don't know why but it's uh, abc's of death he did the the w episode for wish and it's really it's probably one of my favorite ones from that whole movie of the 26 different little stories and this movie was was filmed all all green screen or or chroma keying or whatever you want to call it and yeah you can definitely tell that but also, this movie was made for about $1,000, $2,000, maybe $5,000. So, Manborg. Manborg starts out, there's a war between humans and, um, and hell. Um, these vampires from hell. And we first see Manborg, before he's Manborg, he's just a soldier and he gets killed by the vampires. Uh, he gets killed by the lead vampire, actually. Draculon is the lead vampire. <laughs> And it's actually played by, um, shit, what's his name? Uh, it's the guy who who actually plays the the editor in <laughs> the editor. I can't think of his name right now. But uh, he's in this movie, and he, yeah, he plays the doctor also in this film. You see Manborg being built on a line like you would see like a, a Toyota Corolla being built. And then our credits go by and everything, and then Manborg breaks free. <laughs> And the way they film this, it's it, it makes me feel like it's from the 90s and some jackass just kind of edited things together and not really caring. But you can see through this film that there this film that there is a lot of care going into it. There's there's not a lot of garbage. There's they didn't take the cheap way around in a way. Yeah, sure everything in this movie is cheap, but you can just see by the different 
the different puppets they built and the stop motion animation that's in this movie. It's really prevalent in this movie too. Uh, some of the bad guys they fight are stop motion, and yeah, it, it does look silly, but so did Jason and the Argonauts and Clash of the Titans, and people love those movies. So get over it, alright. So from there on out, we um, we get to see Manborg walking the streets of, of the New World now, and it's a mixture, it's like an, uh, a neon industrial shit city filled with vampires that rule over everything. Like the vampires here aren't like your classical kind of vampire. Um, they they look all they look like fried testicles in a way. And they all wear kind of they're all wearing uniforms uh, very akin to like the Nazi uniform because they took over the United States, I guess, is where they took over from. And so we get to see these Nazi esque vampires harassing people and, and that's where Manborg kinda jumps in and he saves a person. And that's where we, we meet the number one man which is he ends up helping Manborg out throughout the movie, and he's this Asian guy, and he has, like, this weird voiceover, which uh, makes this character kind of unique in a way. Uh, it is very interesting. He's a master of kung fu, because, of course, he's an Asian guy, right? But after that fight, they're both captured, and we get to see the city a bit more as they're driving through, and it's, it's all green screen, and it's all art done by these guys which I believe this movie took about two or three years to do. One for filming and two years for after, all the after effects and everything. And it's just a few guys doing this. This isn't a bunch of people. You can see in the credits that, that Kostansky and Gillespie were had their hands in pretty much everything, including music, I believe. So when they're captured, they're brought to jail, and that's where we meet a couple of the other characters, uh, Justice and Mina, who are brother and sister, and they are compadres of the number one man. Uh, at first, none of them like Manborg because he's a goof. And Manborg in this movie, he's got like this curly kind of afro-ish uh, hair. Right? It's really like all over the place. And Manborg himself looks very kind of cheaply done, like a cheap Borg, but without his head shaved and all white and stuff. It looks really cheesily put together. But it's not, it, it's, it, you're not looking at his costume and looking at all the imperfections. Because the movie is pretty much already set up that, I mean, this movie is imperfect. It's, there's a lot of things in here that wouldn't be accepted into, like, mainstream Hollywood and stuff. That's what I love about this movie, though. It doesn't give a shit. And there's lots of violence, lots of gore and everything. And it's only 60 minutes long, so you, you, I'm sure people can understand why this wouldn't be used, or this wouldn't be shown in theaters. Yeah, it's very cheap. And it's not for everyone. This is, I think this is a very kind of niche movie to where you really have to kind of be into these low-budget films uh, that do well, or or just artistic films. Because it's, it's tough to get those out, just like I was saying before with the Scorsese thing. Um, these are the kind of movies that I like to watch, of course. These <laughs> real kind of semi-grindhousey films. This one really isn't a grindhouse movie, but yet it doesn't do what Tarantino and Rodriguez did for the grindhouse movie to where, you know, they put in all the things with uh, missing scenes and then they acted like, you know, uh, or they put on the screen and different filters, you know, the tracking lines or whatever. This movie really doesn't do that. It doesn't try and fill in for parts that they couldn't do. 
but throughout the movie, it kind of seems like this movie is filmed with um, with an old kind of VHS camera, but high def in a way, to where there's some scan lines that go through the movie, and it seems like it's not shot in uh, like the frame rate's really low in this movie, so it, it characters are moving around semi, you know, kind of like cutting or, or not moving as gracefully as other films would. But I kind of like that because it puts me in the mood for this 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 movie that you can say you just found on a VHS, VHS tape somewhere and popped in and like, holy shit, someone made this fucking crazy movie. Who knows? But anyway, from there on in, we, um, we see that they are... Uh, in a jail, and that they're going to be forced to compete in a coliseum against other vampires and like these race car-ish kind of bikes. Um, they're kind of like Ray's bike in uh, Force Awakens in a way. They kind of seem like that, or maybe a, a little bit more like Judge Dredd and what he drove around in that stupid shitty movie. Not the Dredd movie that came out with Carl Urban, but the one with Stallone in it. I love that one. And I, I, <laughs> it looks actually it looks better and not as manufactured as the Dread movie. So there's uh, they're in this Coliseum, uh, number one guy Mina, Justice, and Manborg, and they fight off the bad guys and win. Uh, Manborg is still kind of learning how to control himself and shoot his weapons, so uh, he does have a problem at first. Like he has a machine gun on his arm and he's shooting and he goes out of control and he almost shoots Mina. So the guys end up not liking him, the, the, his, his, his crew, I would say. So when they win, they're, they're escorted back to the jail, and, you know, they, they're not too big of fans of uh, a Manborg. And this is around the time we kind of meet the Baron. I think we met him a little bit before. But the Baron is kind of like the second-in-command of all the vampire bad guys. And he was injured we learn later on that number one guy actually took out the Baron's eyes, and so he's wearing like these stupid glasses on. <laughs> and and what's funny though too is that throughout this movie he likes the Mina character, and it's just funny like how he's trying to get close to her, he gets her flowers and everything. But he's like completely ugly vampire looking dude, and she has no interest in in him at all. And it's just funny how he's carrying himself throughout the movie. There's a part where later on we meet the doctor who made Van Borg, and that he's trying to, you know, ask the doctor, you know, what am I doing wrong? You know, how do I get her to like me kind of thing? And it's funny. It's how it's done. It's not, it's not, like, there's there's never a point in this movie, like I, I do see with a lot of independent films, since, like, Reservoir Dogs came out, there, there kind of seemed like the, there's, like, Every single independent movie that came out, there was always going to be like a conversation between two people going on. It really has nothing to do with the movie in any way, yet they're going to tell their joke or tell a story. And, and it was that snappy dialogue that, that Quentin Tarantino kind of introduced into films where people are like, oh, fuck, people speak like that kind of thing. So there's never any moment like that in this movie, which, thank God, because... It, it kind of seems like there's a part like that in every Rob Zombie movie, but instead of, like, snappy dialogue, it's of someone telling, like, a really bad joke that maybe, like, a, a seventh grader would tell. And it's... 
I guess I just don't find that crap funny anymore, nor do I find Rob Zombie's film interesting to me. Like, I haven't even seen the last movie, Three from Hell or whatever, because it's... Yeah, like his editing and like his content, I'm just not a fan of. But anyway, I'm getting kind of off topic about that. So the um, so Man Borg's next challenge is he has to uh, fight this unbeaten cyborg meat creation that's all um, stop-motion animated. So there's a big fight in the arena. And what's really cool about this arena, too, is that it's full of life. Even though it's filmed on a green screen, I like how they they were they had uh, the crowd in the background, and it, and it seems like it's thousands of people out there. But what the filmmakers actually did is, I'm sure there was probably about ten of them, and they all put on different costumes and filmed everything separate, and then just put it all in the movie. And I mean, it looks pretty good, to be honest with you. They do take close-ups of the crowd every once in a while cheering, which you should do when you have a scene like uh, like this in a coliseum or, or an arena. You need to show some reaction shots from the crowd, and then they do do that, of course. And it all looks good, and it's all pretty seamless, too. If you can really just suspend your belief in these things for a minute, you're, you'll be able to enjoy this movie even more. So we, we, we get a revelation later on that the Doctor actually made Manborg to cover up for a mistake that he made earlier on. He's the actual guy who opened up the gates of hell. And Dra Draculon now controls him and gets him to do whatever he does. He's his prisoner and he's the doctor. And so the doctor makes Manborg to fight off his mistake, which was the, the, the different vampires coming up and from hell. So Manborg actually ends up beating the big uh, anim oh, not animatronic stop-motion monster, and then he ends up freeing the three others, and they head out and find number one man's old, kind of like, his, his old fort or underground little place where he has, like, nunchucks and shit. This is where they, I guess, get ready to go to battle against the the vampires and Draculon and, and the Baron. Uh, during this time, we see Mina exits their little home that they have with all their weapons and a figure appears, and it's like kind of like a cyborgish meat stop motion person. And Mina and her have a kind of like a conversation. We get to see in the past that there's this one character in the movie. Um, her name is Shadow Mega. She's able to maintain her human form, but at any point in time, she can transform into like this another one of those meat stop-motion action cyborg creatures and she's like probably my favorite character in this movie so we get to see that she was once at some time a human and she was taken away from i want to say it was her friend mina was her friend i don't think they were siblings at all but they were part of the same crew at one point unfortunately she's shadow mega is her name uh, she's taken away and created and made into a bad person so we know later on they're going to have their face off at some point but she is later kidnapped, or not kidnapped, she gets, uh, she goes to seek out uh, uh, Shadow Mega and is actually captured by her. They start fighting, and we cut away to Manborg and the rest of the guys getting ready to go fight and take out pretty much the whole city, it seems like. Or at, least, at the very least, the Baron and Draculon. To which, yeah, of course, they make it to the city, they have a big fight. You got number one man, he's fighting the Baron. 
we have Mina, she ends up fighting Shadow Omega, and then Manborg fights Draculon. Draculon is the guy from the beginning who actually ends up killing Manborg's, I want to say, brother or, or commanding officer in the war elite, war leading up to where we are now. Manborg, after a nice lengthy fight, beats the bad guy, Draculon, but right before that, Draculon shot like an energy ball and hit Mina on the chest with it. So she is dead at that moment. Uh, Manborg beats Draculon, and then he has like this kind of Tony Starkish fucking thing in his chest, which has like this juice in it, this uh, uh, fluorescent juice, and he pours it into Mina's mouth, and we learn that that was Manborg's source of power. And, and at the end, Manborg dies. And then we see our three characters are left, which is Justice, Mina, and Number One Man. And from the rubble of what Manborg just blew up, we get to see a bunch of different vampires coming up and getting ready to fight. And that's pretty much where our film ends, because the th our three main heroes that are left size up the competition and go to attack, and then that's the end of the movie. I didn't count how many kills were in this movie this time. I did last time, and I lost my paperwork for that. But it was a shit time. I would have to say at least 70 or 80. No breasts in this in this movie. But there's a lot of death. And this movie is very gory, too. There's decapitations, head explosions, head meltings. A lot of melting. A lot of, this movie is very juicy. Uh, so if you like juicy movies, I would say definitely check this one out. This one's kind of hard to give a letter grade to. I would love to give it an A. Which I think I will. You know, I'm going to give it an A minus, actually. Just because of, of all went into this movie. I, these guys are artists. They did, and they did a great job. So, yeah. You know what? A minus for me on this film. This is a definite check out. Uh, after this one, there is a trailer or a faux trailer for an upcoming Astron 6 movie. And it's called Biocop. And it's really hilarious. It's pretty funny. <laughs> it's just about this. Just, just think of the incredible Melting Man. If he became a cop, then that's your movie right there. So, <laughs> wow, you know, this was tough today, especially just doing this by myself and not having anyone to go off of. And, yeah, I'm sure I'm going to have to go around and do a little edits to this one to make it seem a bit more cohesive. But, you know, um, yeah, hopefully she will be back next week. I think so, unless she gets me sick, and then who knows. We have a couple more episodes, or one more episode, until we reach episode 100. And that should be in a, two more weeks. We will do our favorite movies of the year. And we won't be doing our least favorite, because, I mean, who really gives a shit about that? And it's not even going to be like a top ten either. It's just going to be movies that we liked and we think other people should see. So, uh, and then that leads up to our episode 100. The movie's picked out already. But um, if you'd like to hear a point of view of this movie, which I'm not going to say just yet, and I would like to be, I don't want to say it's a surprise or anything, but it's its a its a larger movie or a bigger name movie than what I'm used to doing. So it should be a little easier, if anything. Um, but yeah, uh, I can't wait to do that one, and I can't wait to do episode 99. I haven't picked the movie just yet. But I do have a lot of plans coming out after um, episode 100. I'm really going to start challenging myself. I'm going to start doing movies like Cemetery Man, where it's it's going to take me forever to, to 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 get out what I want to say about that film. So it'll be a longer, a little bit longer of an episode, which 
is happening anyway now. Uh, the episodes are getting a bit longer. They're ending up being about 50 minutes to an hour now. I think that's fitting a bit more. I see that a lot more podcasts are just like three-hour ones on there, and I know people who love that, who love like the nice long drive, and you have this long-ass uh, podcast. But I like to keep mine shorter for shorter rides or for train rides. If you live in a big city like I do in Chicago, you can just throw that on while you get on the bus or the train, and by the time you get to work, it's over. Next episode. But, uh, yeah, they are getting a bit longer, and I kind of like it. I, I did want to keep them shorter to begin with, but we're we're really starting to connect a bit more. And things are flowing a lot better. So I'm going to keep this a little bit longer of a format, it seems. I have cut out a little bit um, of just, like, some of the technical stuff, I want to say. Uh, I don't have a, a song excerpt in the middle anymore. I just keep that to the uh, PFPN ad. And... I, I really didn't think the music was needed anymore. So I just keep the, the music to the end and uh, the opening soundbite along with the 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 song from uh, Fright Night, which it always plays, which I like to have for the opening because it's my favorite song of all time. And one of my favorite scenes from a movie of all time, too, from Fright Night. Anyway, now I'm just rambling, but shit. Um, yeah, thank you guys for listening, and we will be back next week with episode 99. Justin will be back. If I bored you, I'm sorry. She'll be back, and everything will be great again. <laughs> Alright, I will see you guys next week.